Would you take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah? We're in the Old Testament. You can go to Matthew and go back two books into the Old Testament. We're looking at these minor prophets that spoke uh, in the time after the exile. So we're looking at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And today we'll uh, start on this first chapter of Zechariah. I'd like to read for us this passage, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your forefathers now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? And then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. It is faithful. It's powerful. It stands when nothing else does. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who learn to listen to your word and to put it into practice, who hear what you want to say and hear it joyfully. And so today, give us wisdom and insight and help us to see how this passage applies to us just like it did in Zechariah's day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, one of uh, the shows that Gail and I like to watch on television, and there aren't a lot of them anymore that we really tune into, but one of the shows that we watch is The Amazing Race. And many of you have probably seen it if you haven't. Uh, It's a show where 11 couples start out on this race around the world and they're engaged in travel and competition that takes place at every stop along the way. And one by one, whoever finishes last is eliminated until you get to this final couple who wins a million dollar prize. Well, what we enjoy about the show is the travel aspect, seeing the different countries that they visit, and then also the competitions that they have along the way. And if you've watched that, one of the things that you'll notice is that so often winning and losing in this competition depends upon following directions. And sometimes it's the contestants themselves who fail to read the clue properly and don't do what they're supposed to do, and they have to go back and do it again because they didn't follow instructions. At other times, they need to drive somewhere, and it's getting in the car and trying to find it, they get lost. Or worse, uh, when they have to take a taxi, sometimes one of the couples ends up in a taxi where the driver has no clue where he is going at all, and they just feel so powerless knowing that they are losing time or everything in this race can hinge upon somebody else who's completely lost. So what do you do? when that happens to you. What do you do when you are lost? Well, they often in the show have to stop, ask for help, and then turn around. Well, in Scripture, that's where the prophets came in. 
When God's people were lost or they were going in the wrong direction, God would send his prophets to call them back and show them the way to go. And they were very clear in this message as they called them over and over again to come back to the Lord, to return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. This passage we're going to look at today is one of the great call passages in Scripture. And we're going to start our study in Zechariah, so I think it'll be helpful if I give you a little bit of background information on the book and the person who wrote it. Zechariah was both a prophet and a priest. He came and was born into a priestly family. He's a son of Berechiah and a grandson of Idu, who was a priest. Now, what we see as time goes on, though, is that he succeeds his grandfather in that role, so most believe that his dad must have died at a young age and never was able to fulfill that office in the same way that Zechariah would. Zechariah was born in Babylon during the exile, and he would return to Judah in the year 538 along with Zerubbabel and the 50,000 other Jews who came back to rebuild the temple and repopulate the land. Zerubbabel lived a long time. There are those who look at his life and think that his ministry extended even into the reign of Artaxerxes, who comes to power in 465 B.C., which means that Zechariah would have lived into his 80s or even into his 90s. But at this time, he is a young man. He's a contemporary of Haggai. In fact, this message that we're going to look at today is given in the year 520, between Haggai's second and third messages. So you have Haggai, this older man of God, this prophet who speaks the word of the Lord, and you have Zechariah, and we're not sure. Maybe he was uh, in his late teens. Maybe he was in his young 20s. He's this man who has heard this word from God, and he is his spokesman. He is sent by God to call the people back into a relationship with him. And what that shows us is, if you look at Haggai's message and think about what we talked about there, Haggai was calling them to rebuild the temple. They had started on the work, stopped. The foundation's there, it's still in ruins. And he wants them to begin to rebuild in obedience to God's command. But God isn't just interested in the temple. He cares about the people and their heart relationship with him. And that's what we see in Zechariah. It is this call back to God. It's this call to come into a right relationship with him. And the call to return that's given here is timeless. It really needs to be heard in every generation. So Zechariah begins his message by telling us that God hates sin. We see that in verse 2 when he said, The Lord was very angry with your forefathers. And he's talking about the captivity that they experienced for 70 years. He's talking about the destruction that is there all around them, the rubble and the ruins that they are seeing in the city of Jerusalem. But to our ears in America, this is a very curious place to begin. I mean, this isn't exactly how to win friends and influence people. You know, you don't start out the first thing you say and you say, God hates sin. We'd rather start out with something like God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life and then talk about sin. But Zechariah states the obvious. They have gone through this horrible period in their life. 
Their forefathers have passed away in captivity. They have been out of their homeland. They have no temple. They have no city, no walls that have been rebuilt yet. And he states the obvious that all of this was because of our sin and our rebellion. We live in an age where many don't want to talk about sin at all. There's a researcher, Christian Smith, who wrote a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And he was trying to understand what is it that teenagers and young adults today think about God, about religion, about their faith, and how it applies to their life. And what he concluded is that Many young American adults have a faith that he would call moralistic, therapeutic deism. And according to this view of God, if we live good lives and if we're kind to others, then God will provide for us therapeutic benefits like self-esteem and happiness. But other than that, God's not much involved in our world. God is out there. He's distant. That's what deism is. You know, he created the world, but he's not too directly involved. And they think that we would call upon him just when we get into trouble. And then God's kind of obligated to answer our prayer and help us solve our problems. And when we pray, we feel better emotionally, so that's why we pray. And that in this understanding of God, Smith writes that this is not a religion of repentance from sin. There's no sense of the holiness of God, no sense of the justice of God or that we are accountable to him. Instead, it is a view that this distant God is not demanding because his job is to solve our problems and make us feel good. There's nothing here to evoke wonder and admiration. (laughs) All right. But the problem with that kind of watered-down faith, if you will, I mean, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is holy and he is awesome. The God of the Bible calls us to lay down our life for him. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him daily and tells us that if anyone wants to save their life, they're going to lose it in the end, but the one who loses his life for his sake will find it. You see, where there's no sin, no recognition of that, there's no repentance And when there's no repentance, there's no way back to God. In contrast, when we look in the scripture, we see examples like David, who felt the weight of his sin in Psalm 32. David had committed adultery with another man's wife, with Bathsheba. And then he tried to cover it up by having Uriah placed in the forefront of the battle so that he would be killed. He tried to keep this all hush-hush and quiet, you know, and stuff it and keep it out of view, but God saw it all. And what David felt during that time was awful. He said in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And David tried to hide it, cover it up. He just felt God's hand on him every single day because God loved him. And he wanted him to come clean, if you will, to admit what he had done and to be honest about that. And it wasn't until he confessed his sin 
that he found forgiveness. Have you felt the weight of your sin? Do you know what I mean when I'm talking about that? Have you felt what it is to feel guilty before a holy God? You know, in that kind of sense of feeling the weight of our sin, uh, I was thinking about that, and the memory that God brought to mind for me was of a time when I was a child, maybe eight or nine, and I took one of my dad's tools, and my dad had this tool, it was a sharpening stone, it was, had a red handle on it, and, and kind of this longer stone, and as a kid, I could use it to sharpen my pocket knife on, or things like that, and it was just, it was a cool, fascinating thing to me. And then came the day when I used it in the wrong way, and I used it like a hammer, and I tapped something, and it broke. It shattered. And I was embarrassed, and I felt bad about that, and so what I did was I hid it. I didn't want to say anything to my dad. And I hid it in some sawdust where dad had his table saw, you know, and I kind of put it there, covered it up, thinking, you know, well, nobody's going to see that, you know, and kind of the kid logic, and of course my dad found it. And I was there when he found it. And I can tell you that the look of disappointment on my dad's face was worse than any punishment that I would have received. I didn't like disappointing my dad. And I think that when it comes to sin, where it's good for us to think about not only the weight of sin, but to also think about, like David would say, that it's against you that I've sinned. That sin affects a relationship, a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And when we sin and when we try to cover that up or hide it, it grieves our Father. What He wants is for us to be honest with Him and to admit our sins and to confess it and seek His forgiveness. And until we feel the weight of our sin, we won't see a need for a Savior. We won't turn to Him in that way. But when we do confess our sin, what we find is that God is merciful and he is forgiving. That's the second point that Zechariah brought out. Look at verse 3. There is a way that we can be forgiven and restored with God, and the remedy is simple, yet it is profound. Return to me, and I will return to you. And what's interesting in verse 3 is that three times the Lord's name is given. God wants us to know that this is a message from him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Three times he repeats his name. Now, anytime you have repetition in Scripture, especially when it's close together, that is for emphasis, that this is a word from God who is gracious, who is merciful and forgiving, if we will but turn to him and admit our sin. And what else we notice here is the title that is given for God. He is the Lord Almighty. He is not some tribal deity He's not some God of the hills or God of the plains. He's not some God who controls the storms or the weathers or other things like the Canaanite gods did. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the Lord who commands the armies of heaven. This is the Lord who is our creator and to whom one day we will stand and give an account. This is a word from God himself. 
And the word that he uses to get our attention is the word turn. Return to me and I will turn to you. In Hebrew, it's the word shuv. My professor used to say the prophets were giving them a shove in the right direction. It's that kind of word. It means to turn or return. It's also translated as repent. It's to turn around. You're going in the wrong direction. Turn around and come back to God. And no one word summarizes the message of the prophets better than this word turn. Jeremiah uses it the most 111 times in the book of Jeremiah. The Psalms use it 71 times. In Genesis, 68 times. Ezekiel, 62 times. And Isaiah, 51 times. More than 1,000 times in the Old Testament, God calls us to turn or return or repent or come back to him. Now, if it's said that often, I would think that's a message we need to hear, isn't it? over and over again. But it's not just an Old Testament message. And think in the New Testament. How did John the Baptist begin his ministry? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. How did Jesus begin his ministry? Same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's time to turn. It's time to come back to God. How did the disciples begin their ministry? Think about Peter on the day of Pentecost when he is preaching about what happened there and how they crucified the Lord of life. And they were cut to the heart, convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they said to Peter, Peter, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And what about Paul, this apostle to the Gentiles, when he was in Athens and he saw this city and the uh, central marketplace filled with all these different gods, these different deities that they spoke about and believed in. He told them about the one true God. And he said, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin and turn to God. You know, when I came to Christ at age 10 at a summer Bible camp, the verse that stuck in my heart, I, I, you know, I still have this picture in my mind. I can see my Bible open, and it is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I can remember that night being back in the cabin talking with some of my friends who also made a commitment to Christ that night. And we talked about how literally we felt lighter. I mean, we felt physically like the burden of our sins had been lifted off and in its place we were filled with the joy of forgiveness, the joy of the Lord. Repentance isn't just a one-time event for the Christian, though. It's not just that our conversion. Repentance is something that we need to do on an ongoing basis. We need to continually turn from sin and turn to Christ. That's how we grow. And it's why God gave us the Lord's Supper. It's why we come to communion. We do it once a month. Some churches do it every Sunday. But it is why we come. It reminds us of this ongoing need that we have to be right with God to confess our sins, turn to it, 
and commit ourselves to following him with all our heart. Thirdly, Zechariah calls us to learn from the past, and we see that in verse 4. He said, Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Judah had a history of rebellion. So did Israel. Judah would go into captivity 586 B.C. to the Babylonians, but Israel, the northern ten tribes, had been carried away long before that in 722 B.C. by Assyria. And you'd think they would have learned from what they saw happen to their brothers and sisters in the north. Before Assyria came into the land, God sent Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and called them to turn back to him. And when they would not listen, they were destroyed as a nation and carried away. And then God sent Jeremiah and the other prophets in his generation who called Judah to repent. And they would not listen. And at the end of 2 Chronicles, we read this summary statement about the fall of Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, they despised his words, they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. It did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and destroyed everything of value there. And here now are a people gathered with Zechariah standing among the ruins and the rubble of the city. The saddest thing is that it didn't have to happen. It did not have to be that way, but they would not listen. Will we? Will we, as a nation and as a people, listen to God? When Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States, he saw our nation being torn apart by a great civil war. And he knew that there was a spiritual dimension to it. He saw slavery as a moral evil. He saw that as something that needed to change in our country. And so in 1863, on April 30th, he called for a national day of fasting and prayer and repentance. He issued a proclamation, and in that proclamation were these words, that we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven, We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand that has preserved us in peace and which multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. 
It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Abraham Lincoln saw it correctly. He saw our need to come before a holy God on our knees, confessing our sins and praying for his forgiveness. When Richard Halverson was a chaplain in the U.S. Senate, he called attention to the fact that it begins with us. Repentance begins with the house of God. Judgment begins with the house of God. And he said that America's future, whatever hope our nation has, depends totally on the people of God being the people of God. Christians have got to be Christians. If we lose that, if we lose our saltiness and we're just following the world, we have no voice, no message for the world, no call to repentance. But if we will come and turn from our sin and seek his face and seek not the blessing of America but the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then God will be pleased to act once again. Repentance starts with us, with his church. And fourthly, Zechariah calls us to make the most of the time that we have. In verses 5 and 6, he asked them these questions. He said, where are your forefathers now? They were all gone. And the prophets, do they live forever? No, they don't. They too will pass from the scene. What he is telling us is that life is short, but God's word abides forever. Those prophets, even though they one day will pass, their word, my word, will stand firm for all generations. And in verse 6, he said, Did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your forefathers? Did not my word catch up with them? You know, the picture for us is real easy to imagine. To overtake is like a state trooper pulling over a speeder. If you've ever had that uncomfortable feeling where you were going too fast and then you saw the lights come on and they pull you over to the side, it's not a good feeling. And he is saying that God's word is like that. It is true. You can't outrun it. And the same word that he uses here for overtake is the word that was used in Deuteronomy 28.15, when Moses described the consequences of disobedience. Nobody gets away with their sin forever. Nobody. It may look like in this life like the wicked are prospering or that people are getting away with cruelty or uh, unjust gain or all kinds of immorality or things like that, but God doesn't settle all accounts in this life. There is a day that is coming, though, when the books will be open and everyone will stand before him. Nobody gets away with their sin forever. How much better it is in this life to confess our sins, to admit it and turn from it and be saved. You know, I think about the generation we are living in where, you know, there are so many examples about how people are tracking, you know, things that we do, whether it's, you know, cell phones that are being recorded or uh, messages you're sharing or GPS tracking where you're going or computers that track where you log in and what you see and do and purchase. And these kind of files are being filled about your life 
And it's amazing all the stuff that they know about you. Now, God knows all of that and much more, and he didn't need a computer to do it. He has always known it. And one day the books are going to be open. And how much better to know that your sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that one day we will stand before him clothed with his righteousness. Zechariah is calling us to repentance. And his message ends with a word of hope that the people heard and they repented of their sin. And they said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. We got what we deserved. We didn't listen. And on this day, like we heard with Haggai when they made the commitment to build the temple, they repented of their sin and they wanted a new beginning. For the believer, this is a call to make the most of the time that we have, to use our time, our gifts, our treasure fully for the Lord. I think of C.T. Studd, who was one of the early pioneer missionaries. He was born in 1860 to a wealthy family in England. He was intelligent. He was well-educated. He studied at Eton and then at Trinity, in Cambridge, or Trinity College in Cambridge. He was also a star athlete and cricket player in his generation in England. And from the world's point of view, he had it all. I mean, he's handsome, he's intelligent, he's gone to the best schools, he's got all the right credentials, he's got wealth, he's got fame, he's a good athlete. I mean, what more could you ask for? He's got it all. And then his father was converted during a crusade in England that was held by the evangelist Dwight L. Moody and Ira Sankey. And shortly after that, C.T. and his two brothers also accepted Christ as their Savior and Lord. But in the years that followed, he was distracted by other things and he began to drift. School, sports, activities, kind of following the world, all caused him to move away from that commitment he had made. But six years later, after living in a backslidden state, he was confronted by the question, what is all the fame and flattery worth when it comes to eternity? What's it all worth? So what? It's like Jesus' question, what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his soul? And C.T. Studd surrendered everything to Christ. He surrendered his heart to Christ. He answered God's call to go to China in 1884 as part of the Cambridge Seven, seven young student athletes who went out as missionaries. And he gave up his entire inheritance. He gave it away. He's a wealthy young man. He gave 5,000 pounds to Moody Bible Institute. He gave 5,000 pounds to George Mueller's orphanage. He gave 5,000 pounds to George Holland's work with the poor in England. And he gave $5,000 to Booth Tucker for the Salvation Army in India. Gave it all away, trusting God to provide for him. And then he wrote these words that have been so meaningful to so many that only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I die, how happy I shall be if the lamp of my life has burnt out for thee. That's total commitment. That's absolute surrender of everything that you have. And that's what this holy God asks of us. 
Return to me and I will return to you. Live for me, lay down your life for me, and you will find it in the end. And there is nothing, no nothing that we would give up for him that he will not return. Only God knows our heart and where we stand with him. But this is a good call today. That if there's something in your life that you need to deal with this morning or confess to him to do that and to give your heart solely to him. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, would you, by your Holy Spirit, turn that searchlight on us. And I would pray that we would be a people who, when we sin, would admit it and turn from it quickly. God, forgive us our sins. Cleanse our heart. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to live for you with that same kind of resolve that moves C.T. Studd to say, Lord, here I am. I will follow you wherever you lead. Lord, help us to live for you in our homes, in our marriage. Help us to live for you in our places of work, in the community, that we would be a light for Christ. And would you be pleased to use us to bring others into our relationship with you. And when that day comes when we stand before you, how happy we will be if our life was given for thee. We pray this all in your name. Amen.